Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Green Dot EIA's podcast for everyone who loves anything or everything about aviation. My name is Hal Bryan. I'm senior editor for print and digital content and publications here at EAA. On my left, as always. I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EA Museum Programs Coordinator. And lurking across the table with a funny look on his face. <laughs> Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director. Excellent. Now we've got uh, not one, not three, but two guests uh, who have uh, connected to us remotely via the magic of Skype. Uh, a, a, a flawless use of internet technology that so far has come together without any technical problems whatsoever, says Hal Lying. <laughs> uh, Chris, why don't you tell us who our guests are? Well, I think uh, we have two great guests today just because their mission so deeply ties into a lot of what we do here. And today's guests are Patrick Mahalik and Todd Trainer from the Warbirds of Glory uh, Museum. They are an aviation museum and an educational museum as well. Hey, guys, how are you? Doing well, pretty good, you. Chris. Well, it's great to have you guys. We, uh, we sure appreciate you taking the time to come and join us. And, uh, um, you know, before we, we dive in um, to uh, sort of individual background and stuff, let's maybe jump around a little bit and start with the fact that, that if people know your organization, know you guys by name, they think immediately of, uh, of an airplane called the Sandbar Mitchell. So could you give us just a, a, a brief intro on the Sandbar Mitchell, then we'll kind of start into the organization and come back to the airplane a little bit later. Sure, sounds good. So uh, basically the B-25 um, Sandbar Mitchell, um, I actually knew about that airplane um, when I was about 18 years old, um, sitting out on a sandbar out in Fairbanks, Alaska. And it basically uh, was built uh, by Kansas, in Kansas City by North American, uh, never saw combat, was always here in the States as a bomber trainer. And then after the war was sold to uh, Johnson Flying Service that modified it to a fire suppression bomber. And after uh, spending many years down in uh, Montana fighting fires, it was sold to another gentleman by the name of Edgar Thorsrud, who actually took the aircraft up to Alaska to work with the Bureau of Land Management to fight forest fires up there. And on uh, June 27th of 1969, it uh, suffered a multi-engine failure on takeoff, and uh, they basically dumped the uh, fire retardant borate and uh, belly landed it on the sandbar, and it sat there for the 44 years. Wow, that, uh, that's incredible, and that's, that's the very airplane that you guys work to recover, which we'll talk about here in just a little bit. Um, to get back to the roots of what got you interested in all this, Patrick, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background in uh, aviation and your love of B-25s and, and your tie also with, with the EAA here? Yeah, so I, I basically grew up on the Brighton Airport in Brighton, Michigan, which is a small um, pilot-owned airport. And I was kind of the airport pest as a kid. So I'd get off of school and I'd ride my bike down, basically going door to door, bugging the pilots to either, you know, allow me to wash their airplane, hand them wrenches, tools, whatever I could do to be involved in aviation. Um, I was part of the Aviation Explorers group out here. So I had those mentors. And actually, Todd, my partner in the museum, I met when I was 16 years old. Him and his dad were actually um, restoring an Aranka K in his garage. And I uh, basically told him that uh, someday I was going to restore Warbirds. And uh, so I went... Uh, I actually went through four years of uh, EA Air Academy up there. Um, actually, back when we stayed at the uh, University of uh, Oshkosh there before the lodge was built, and I spent two years actually at the lodge. And uh, I went to college, got a bachelor's in aviation maintenance technology, and then after college, basically uh, picked up a phone, started a, a restoration company, and uh, basically got a my first project, which was working on a pt-22 and uh, did a lot of work on p-51s and some other really cool airplanes and but my ultimate love was to someday 
um, basically build a museum and restore and rebuild the B-25. Well, I guess um, your, uh, your love of B-25s is uh, certainly evident. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, where that began? Do you, do you, do you have a specific uh, interest in the airframe? Uh, basically, as far as I can remember, I was a kid. Um, my grandfather used to say I was a reincarnated bomber pilot because at age of about nine years old, I was drawing pictures of B-25s even before I knew what a B-25 was. And I can look at those pictures today, and, and I mean, you could tell that it's a B-25, I mean, clean and clear. And I have no idea how I knew what that was when I was that age, but I mean, the tail, the engines, the guns, everything was there. So it was just because of that, it, it just, you know, fascinated me, and I wanted to learn more and more about them. And it just became my basically my favorite World War II airplane. Yeah, I think the uh, the first model I built was a uh, B B twenty six, and that's just because I'm an airplane hipster, and I always mm -hmm. go for the uh, the least the, the less <laughs> uh, famous uh, uh, very or uh, you know cousin of a uh, of the of the more famous. But the well, uh, and that's, that's typical was, Tom, always trying to go one better. You know, oh, you like B twenty fives? Well, I like B twenty sixes. Okay, well, I'm going to restore a B twenty seven. All right, if anybody knows what that is, you tell me. Yeah, well, I'll show you. I'm a train guy, so that's how much of a hipster I am. <laughs> but I was was gonna say the uh, yeah the B25 was uh, was one of the uh, the earlier airplanes uh, that I was interested in, in too. So you're there in Michigan, and um, you're, you're you're there in Michigan, and you've got a B25 sitting on a sandbar up in Alaska. Uh, so how exactly did that happen? How did you decide to uh, to go ahead and restore um, that? Uh, particular airplane well basically the the whole story actually starts back in 2012 um and what it was is you know i knew that what was left of the b25 really out on the sandbar was basically the center section and then a few bits and pieces left of the forward and aft fuselage and the outer wing panels were also removed um from people scavenging and i had was very fortunate that uh some parts from a b25 that once was on display here in the states um that got auctioned off uh Ford fuselage section actually ended up on eBay, and I flat out found out who owned it, cold called them, and, and told them my story, said what we wanted to do, and said that if we could acquire these parts, it would make it worth trying to save what was left of Sandbar Mitchell and to build her, and uh, basically sold everything I owned, um, dipped into my, my savings, and was able to come up with the money to buy um, that, that part of the airplane, which gave us the first big chunk. Once I had that, that made me realize that you know Sandbar Mitchell was not just a dream, it was a possibility. And uh, a quick story, actually, when I was going to go pick up that, that Ford fuselage section from Oklahoma, um, Todd actually just got back. Todd actually directs the Aranka Aircraft History Museum. So he just got back from picking up an uh, Aranka project with a Penske truck. So I was going to use that Penske truck and pull a 16-foot car trailer to go ahead and pick up this Ford fuselage of the B-25. And at the time, I had the basic manuals, but I didn't have the actual engineering drawing. So dimensions and that kind of stuff, I had to actually go take on my own. And uh, so on the way, me and my buddy, we stopped at the Kalamazoo Air Zoo to take measurements of their B-25 Ford section to see and make sure it would fit on this trailer. And as we were leaving the museum, there was this two-foot-tall stack of used magazines. And lo and behold, on the top of that stack was the 1992 Warbirds International magazine on the cover that says The Mystery of the Sandbar Mitchell. And I said, you know, if this is not a sign, I don't know what is. And then, you know, just once of these things, opportunities just presented themselves, and I was there to, to take them. And Todd had a, a gentleman call from uh, Fairbanks actually looking for some drawings for float fittings. And right away I asked Todd, I said, hey, you know, ask him if he knows anything about Sandbar Mitchell. And then that just opened up so many doors because now we're in touch with 
the lead mechanic that actually went out there after it crashed, took the engines off, knew the family really well, um, got us in touch with the family because it actually was still on the FAA registry. Um, it was expired, but at least it was still there. And then it basically was, you know, telling the story to the family. The family basically said over the years people contacted their father um, wanting to buy the rights to the airplane just either for the data plate and the uh, serial number or they just wanted to go out there and scavenge it for parts. And uh, Edgar used to always tell him basically no. And uh, about two weeks later, we got a really, really heartfelt um, letter in the mail and uh, basically saying the reason that their dad did not sell that airplane because it was waiting for us. And at that point in time, they turned over the ownership to Sandbar Mitchell to us. And the name Sandbar Mitchell was given to the aircraft actually by the locals um, because where the airplane was, it was actually kind of in the approach to Fairbanks International Airport. So they knew that when they saw the B-25, they knew that's when they had to start making their turn. Um, so that basically gave us the actual ownership of the serial number. But then it was, you know, six months permit, you know, get all the different permits. And that's a whole other story. And I'm very thankful for Todd and his wife because they spent, I can't tell you the amount of countless hours um, doing research and talking to these different organizations just to be able to get all the permits um, to do this right. Because a lot of people were just saying, oh, just go out there and take it, just go get it. But we wanted to do it the right way. We wanted to make sure we had all the proper permits, all proper permissions. And then because we had to be very public with this, we had to raise the money for the recovery. We had to you know, work with the locals in Fairbanks to be able to get some of the items that we could not bring along on the airplane, like generators, chainsaws, gas cans, and that kind of stuff, including you know, pickup trucks. So, I mean, all that stuff was available because we did it the right way. So, let me ask you this. Um, throughout all of this, uh, especially at the very beginning when it seems, this is one of those ideas that, as you said, it seems, it, it might seem sort of straightforward at first. And then, hey, there's a B-25 on a sandbar. Let's just go get it. Uh, then, as you start looking at it, then I, th I think it goes from straightforward to seemingly impossible and then act three is, well, somehow you did it. Um, did anybody just tell you no along the way? Did anybody just, just tell you you're crazy, that you, you can't do this? We, we had a lot of people that said the aircraft was beyond recovering because um, there's actually other organizations that had big budgets that tried to go out and do this. And here we are, you know, two, two small guys, you know, from, from a little town that, you know, don't have a huge budget that have, you know, the dream, the determination. And I wasn't going to let anything stop me. I knew that we could do it and that we're, you know, would be successful at it. And we came up with a plan um, on how we were going to get the aircraft off of there. And then, uh, you know, our story made local news. Um, we ended up doing a Kickstarter campaign, which raised the money for the recovery. And then it was like, you know, my I say my guardian angels came through because as the story made local news, it just so happens Construction Helicopters, Inc., which is in the next town over from us. Same time we're up there, we're transitioning their Sikorsky S-92 through Fairbanks to Borough, Alaska for a contract, and they donated the airlift. So all we knew we had to do is basically get, you know, what was left disassembled from the aircraft, what was left of the forward fuselage, rear fuselage, landing gear, um, flaps, and other bits and pieces from the cell and control surfaces. That stuff we all took off by donated riverboat. And then the center section was the actual heaviest part. And we actually had to get that jacked up off the ground so it wasn't buried in the silt like it was originally. And then they just uh, airlifted it away. You know, there's something uh, there's something really powerful about that. And, and you talk about the, uh, and I know we'll talk a little bit more about this idea as we go along, but um, there's something about, our world of, of aviation, it's restorations and things like this. Uh, and and I, I suppose you see this outside of aviation, but I don't think it's anywhere near as rich that, that really at the beginning, you know, you, you, you showed up and you had an idea and you had the passion and you had the drive. You couldn't have planned 
um, things like the phone call from the guy in Alaska to help you make that ended up helping you make contacts up there. You couldn't have planned this helicopter just happening to be in the right spot at the right time. Um, all these things. And if you had written those into a business plan, it's like, well, I'll, I'll accept uh, three or four amazing coincidences. And then, you know, step five, we'll have a B-25. It doesn't, you know, you can't, uh, you can't sit down and write that down. But it's powerful to me that, uh, uh, that when, you, when you show up and you, you say we're going to do this and you get people interested to rally around it, people just come out of the woodwork, don't they? Oh, and they and they do, and there. And I mean, there's many more stories to this. I mean, besides Sam Bar Mitchell, we actually have, um, we basically have two and a half B twenty five airframes. Um, well, you can never the one have B25 too many. That originally, no. So the the one B twenty five that I originally purchased the parts off of that was on eBay. Um, actually was part of the Royal Canadian Air Force before it came to the states here and was broken up for parts. But uh, once again, one of those kind of same similar stories was when we were working on after we got the whole center section down. We have our spars all NDT, got a clean bill of health on the spars. And we're starting to put, you know, put the airplane back together. And it's basically the center section is what we're working on restoring right now. And the top center, uh, top part of the bomb bay, there's these uh, extruded attach angles that actually attach the fuselage sections together. And on Sandbar Mitchell, someone came and they cut the top of the airplane off. Well, at the same time, I was getting ready to order the extruded material to make them. We had someone contact us up in Nome, Alaska and said, do you know that there's a B-25 carcass sitting here in the dump? And lo and behold, we went up there and looked, and sure enough, there was a Lend-Lease B-25. Um, this airplane actually has only 40 hours total time on it from it went to North American, into the Lend-Lease program, went up through the, uh, the Lend-Lease route, um, basically was delivered to them in Fairbanks on 9-2 of 44, and then they bellied it in, in, in uh, Nome Field, at Satellite Field. So they basically went out there, they stripped what they could off the aircraft, and then the, the airframe sat there, and it was used for target practice. So once again, this airplane had, you know, hundreds of bullet holes in it but every single piece that we needed was missed and in an airworthy condition so it was one of those things once again it's another one of those divine things like it's meant to be so we were able to acquire that airplane and bring it back to brighton and i know todd's going to talk about our youth program and our mentorship program which is huge part of our museum but uh, that B, that other B-25, our, our plan is actually is going to be put back together to static display because, sadly, it does have corrosion in the spar, so that one can't fly. So what we basically do is any of the parts from Sandbar Mitchell that were damaged from the accident or cut from people scavenging, um, we can actually put those parts on the static one. And then the parts that are airworthy from the static one can then go on Sandbar Mitchell. Uh, that's that's terrific. Now, uh, now, Todd, I understand that uh, that that you had a comment you wanted to make about uh, sort of this the idea of the the part that luck and coincidence and other good things like that yeah, play and something know, like that. A lot of people say we're really lucky, and you and you even mentioned how you know you can't plan for some of the stuff that happened. You can't you can't plan on a helicopter company being going right through there at the same time. But what I can tell you is that something that both Patrick and I have, and Patrick is very good at this, and that is. Um, luck is really observing um, an opportunity that's come past you and taking advantage of it. And that is what Patrick is extraordinarily good at, is recognizing uh, and adapting to um, some, some uh, fortunate opportunities that come by. And that, you know, we got a whole PowerPoint presentation that we do when we do the, the, the road show. And we talk about all of those points along our path that were the branches, you know, in our decision making that was um, luck to most people. But for us, it was properly taking advantage of opportunities and and then also uh, preparing yourself for opportunities. You know, we're very public about this, unlike a lot of the other big budget museums and 
individuals that are extremely wealthy, which do everything in, in secrecy. Um, we are not. We are a, a low-budget museum, and we make it very public, and we get these opportunities that come our way, and we take advantage of them. He's very good at that. Well, that's excellent, and that's, uh, I think that's good advice for anybody, really, in any endeavor. And I, like I was saying before, and, and maybe it's just me, or maybe I'm, I'm just a very clearly biased, but I think you see that kind of behavior. I think that, that sort of thing you're talking about just manifests itself so visibly and, and often in such a big way in aviation. And I, I know it's true in other interests and other pursuits, but, but I, I've just never seen it shine so brightly as I do in aviation. And uh, Patrick and Todd, you guys just uh, a little bit ago mentioned your youth program. Uh, Todd, do you want to touch on on the youth program and uh, what you guys sure. are doing? Because it's more than just a restoration, which, which I mean, restoring these aircraft alone is just an awesome endeavor. But the other aspect of what you're doing is also uh, really incredible. We have a very important impact on our, our local community. And, and those impacts are not only are we preserving American history and American aviation history, but we're also honoring our veterans and those who fought for our freedom and made the supreme sacrifice. So this this B-25 is going to fly as a, as a memorial and a reminder for those. Um, but in addition to those two impacts, we are mentoring the youth of our community. We are teaching them uh, trade skills, uh, workshop disciplines, and uh, working with tools, which we call toolmanship, and um, being a good old uh, uh American in, in understanding the, the values that made our country great and making sure that the next generation um, um, understands those and learns them. So our mentorship program is in, in various different flavors. In fact, our mentorship program started prior to um, the San Barbara Mitchell actually arriving in our hangar. We uh, have owe, Patrick and I both owe what we have learned from the veterans and our fathers and uncles and those who hung around the airports because Patrick and I have a very similar background where we had people that mentored us. Well, now that we are older, it's time for us to pass it forward and it's something that's very important and goes deep into our hearts. So what we have started, what we started off doing five years ago was just apprenticeship style mentoring. That is one-on-one. Um, -on -one. Uh, a youth would come in, um, you know, anywhere from 13 on, uh, years old and on up, and then we would just work with them shoulder to shoulder and show them the trade and teach them along the way. You know, it could be simple stuff like um, uh, bead blasting and paint stripping or drilling rivets. And we have uh, half a dozen um, youth right now that are, are fairly talented at drilling rivets, and that's a high-risk operation because if you don't drill a rivet correctly, you can destroy a part. So we were doing the apprenticeship-style mentoring for a long time, and we've had uh, uh, several dozen youth uh, participate in our program uh, throughout the time. Well, um, we also realized that um, we want them to know CAD, because one of the things that Patrick hasn't mentioned is that he is CAD, uh, he's modeling all of the B-25 parts. Since, since we have the drawings for B-25, when we start working on it, it gets CADed. And Patrick is doing a lot of that, but we're trying to mentor the youth and doing CAD modeling as well. That's interesting because that is a skill that is applicable in today's workforce. Even though we're working on an airplane from 70-some years ago uh, that was originally designed with slide rules and drafting board and pencil, we are using CAD and computers and CNC machines to recreate the parts that we want. So 
I see that as being fairly ironic. But the skills that the youth learn in CADing and CNCing is very important. Well, CNCing, that's, that's a hard apprenticeship thing to do. So what we have done is we have created a classroom style environment for CAD mentoring. And several times a year, we have a um, an engineer from Roush uh, Aerospace here in the Detroit area to uh, come out every Saturday for four Saturdays in a row. And we, we mentor uh, in a classroom style 10 youth between the ages 14 and 23 on CAD modeling. It's uses SolidWorks, uses the same kind of uh, maker license that EAA has for all of its members. And we use that and we set them up on 10 computers and we go through uh, a lecture style. And what's interesting is that we are using B25 parts as all of our samples from the simplest little shim to show them how to make a little box and extrude it up by uh, 16 thousands all the way to complex landing gear control arms and whatnot we do it all with uh, b25 drawings that's neat because what we want to do is we want some of those youth to, to uh, when they're done with that help us continue to draw some more um, or model some more of these b25 drawings uh, so that we can have the whole airplane done someday and I actually want to jump in really quick, Todd. Yeah. I can. Um, and Todd was saying about that, so one of the, one of the things that we actually did um, with some of our students that did go through this CAD class and, and gain the skills, we actually went ahead and were hired by the Minnesota wing of the CAF um, to make the radio racks for their B-25 Miss Mitchell. And so our students went ahead and they CADed up from the drawings. We didn't have any of these parts, um, nearly 70-some pieces um, went ahead, built all 3D modeling, went ahead, created all the CNC code, and then had to make all the tooling, all the dies, and we basically scratch-built these radio racks. And when we sent them to the CAF and they actually mounted them in the airplane, they said it fit absolutely perfectly. So the thing that was great was is these kids got to see what they did from the beginning all the way to the end, and now when they go to the air shows and they look inside the B-25, they can see what they actually built themselves, and now it's you know part of this flying memorial for them. That yeah, what an experience. Cool. Yeah, yeah, what an experience. So one of the things Patrick has found out, uh, Patrick and I have both found out, is that um, there, there's a lot of hunger amongst the teenagers to, um, to, to learn how to turn a wrench and, and to work at a workshop. And they don't always have access to a father or uncle or a veteran like Patrick and I did. So um, we're turning away kids. We, we had to start turning away because there's so much demand for our mentorship. But Patrick and I still have to sleep and eat, and we don't have enough hours in the day to do it. So we have recently launched a new mentorship program, which is called uh, a structured or curriculum-based mentorship. It's one-on-one. -on -one. So we have found volunteers, adults in the community that have workshop skills, and we have a whole curriculum of what uh, a youngster needs to learn, a, a young man or a young woman that wants to participate. We pair them up one-on-one -on -one with one of these adult mentors, and we go through a rigid curriculum um, on learning everything about what, what they need to know in the workshop and aviation trade skills. It starts off with screwdrivers and safety and the various types of wrenches, how to measure, and including fractions. Believe it or not, there's a lot of these youth that don't quite understand fractions yet. And there's a lot of fractions in SAE tooling, right? So um, we we're go, we go through a very rigid structure there. And when they pass, that's probably a year or so um, course. And it's one-on-one. It's -on -one, so it could be uh, every day after school or just on the weekends or once a month or whatever. So it is uh, paced at the, at the youth's desire and needs. But when they graduate out of that program, then they get their hands on an actual B25 parts by working on 
the the Lend-Lease B25 that Patrick mentioned earlier. And and that's where they can make their mistakes in learning how to drill rivets because those parts are not going to be airworthy. And then the ones that graduate from there get to work on the B25 directly. So we've had 33 youth go through our program already, and our new curriculum-based one-on-one mentorship program is growing and is going to be big a big impact in our community. Now, now one thing Todd didn't mention I just want to tell about really quick was actually growing up, I actually had a learning disability, um, basically all through middle school and high school. So because of that, I had to have a tutorial class, which basically meant one hour of the day, um, I would go down to this class where I'd be able to sit there with other teachers to assist me on my homework and the stuff that I was having trouble on. And a lot of the times, I would have my homework done, so instead of just sitting in the class, they would basically send me down to the shop class. So I'd either go down, I didn't actually take auto shop, but as long as the auto shop teacher was in there, they would let me be in the machine shop, welding shop, and that kind of stuff. So I would go ahead in CAD, and I'd design my own projects, and I'd actually sit there and build them. So I had all these opportunities because my, my grandfather was a tool and die maker. So, you know, I grew up, grew up around him, uh, learning from him and also my father. And then being able to have those opportunities in school, you know, just got me where I am today. And sadly, um, the schools around here, they've gotten rid of their machine shop, their auto shop. And what they've done is each of these schools, we have basically like four main school districts. Um, one will have auto shop, one will have machine shop. And then basically, so now these kids from the one school, if they want to take, say, machine shop, they got to drive now 45 minutes over to that school to be able to do that. So, like, the opportunity that I had growing up um, is not there. So by us being able to do what we're doing here, it's giving these kids local um, a place to go and a, and a place to be able to learn this kind of stuff. I mean, if I, you know, growing up around the airport in my teens, if there was something around this like this, I would have been just completely ecstatic because this is, you know, this is something I've always wanted to do. And, uh, you know, some of the kids now, like we actually have one of our youth here right now, Jake, um, that lives on the other side of the airport. And Jacob, he's homeschooled, and he'll come down here, you know, three or four times a week. He'll get done at school at noon, and he spends, you know, basically the, his whole afternoon here, you know, working on the B-25. That's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think you've been touching on it quite a bit throughout, um, you know, throughout your description of, of your, your amazing youth program, as well as uh, a little bit earlier, um, you know, the, the, the different parts that you've picked up from different aircraft. But I want to talk just a little bit right now about the state of the restoration business. It's certainly not the 60s, or 60s 70s and 80s anymore. You know, you wanted a B-25. You had to go up to Alaska and pull one off a sandbar. Um, you know, we have Doc, the B-29, that just started flying. That was on a bombing range in the desert. Uh, there's aircraft that have fallen off of aircraft carriers into the water that were pulling out of the water and starting to restore. So, um, you know, you, you want to restore a flying example of, a, of an aircraft. You really need to want it. Uh, and can you just talk a little bit about what it's like to reproduce parts, to machine parts, uh, to scrounge for them? Um, what are the unique challenges that you're facing now that, you, that uh, you know, maybe 20 years ago might not have been there? Well, one of the unique things with the North American aircraft, like the T-6, the Mustang, and, of course, the B-25, we're very fortunate that there was um, gentlemen back in the 60s and 70s that were basically buying up all the inventory from the Air Force, from the foreign countries, of parts. And uh, so out in California, there's a, there's a company out there called Aerotrader. Um, Carl Schultz, there's a great guy, and Tony, and they have the largest inventory of B-25 parts in the world. They actually have enough airframes that they can actually make restore an actual B-25 for somebody and, and have a couple more flying. Um, but a lot of like the castings and that kind of stuff, if we need something, I'm very fortunate that I can actually call Carl and uh, nine times out of ten he'll have the part. 
Um, but when it comes to making sheet metal stuff, the sheet metal stuff is not the biggest issue because um, basically, you know, if you have the drawings, which we do, it's just, you know, it's time consuming. You just got to make, you know, the tooling because what we don't have is the actual tooling, you know, drawings that North American had. So once we go ahead and we draw the part in CAD, then we have to go ahead and reverse engineer the tool off that part. But now with, you know, CNC technology and that kind of stuff, it does help and it does speed up making these parts. Because um, even in the early 90s, a lot of times, the earlier restorations, um, when they would have to make parts, it'd be basically taking the original part, and you're going to have to go through now, and you're going to have to hand make the molds. And there's still some companies out there that do that, and then, uh, you know, form the part off of that way. But it's, uh, you know, extrusions. Um, a lot of times we'll have to have extrusions made because you just can't, you can't buy these special North American extrusions. So you have to, you know, you might need, you know, a 12-foot piece, but now you have to go ahead and, you know, there's minimum order, so you have to order extra. And then now you have extra parts, you know, sitting on the shelf that you can either trade or, you know, um, use, you know, throughout the whole restoration of the airplane. And speaking of machining parts and, and making tooling, it's an interesting intersection of the old and the new here in our shop because we have a, a mill and lathe, but we also have a CNC mill and lathe and router. And us younger people are doing the catting and cutting the parts out in the CNC. But the uh, veteran volunteers that come out, they're, they're not computer savvy. They're not CNC guys. Oh, those, those new fancy machines, I, I could do it faster than that. Well, we've got the old equipment for them. So when we need a bushing, one of the old guys wants to make it, well, then they'll, he'll, just, he'll just whittle it out on a uh, on, on our, our manual lathe. We have a lathe from 1929 that saw uh, war usage. And uh, he'll he'll cut it out on there perfectly, the old-fashioned way. That's very cool to hear. That's just, that's really impressive. Oh, actually, before I ask this next question, I did want to say too. You mentioned uh, Carl Shaw and Aero Trader and things like that, and obviously with uh, with our B25 project here at EAA, you know, we're very familiar with him, and, and uh, um, it's exciting for us to. Uh, uh, to see these two projects sort of sort of in parallel obviously we had a we had a much easier head start our our airplane wasn't uh, wasn't stuck on a sandbar for four decades but uh and and i think we're a little bit further along than you but um how, how cool is it that we're all sitting here talking and uh and we know that two b25s are going to be back in the air uh just because of our two organizations we like to say that we had to get the high-hanging fruit <laughs> because for many, many years, people were able to get the low-hanging fruit, the easy ones, the B-25s right. that were sitting out a ramp somewhere and it was just aging. Well, um, the two, two guys in a museum that just started with nothing doesn't, didn't have the money. Of course, it would have been cheaper just to go out and, and, and buy a B-25 and restore it rather than getting one that was crashed. But to us, it's the journey. It's the sure. mentoring of the youth that, and, and, and the honoring of our veterans. That is just as important to us as, as eventually getting this thing flying. And it's what we could afford, and it's what we're excited about. Every piece of this airplane has been taken apart to its basic component, and inspected and put back together. It's, uh, and it's just, it's just funny. You guys had to go to Alaska for your restoration project. We basically had to walk down the hall. But uh, there, are, there ours <laughs> yeah, was. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, you talk about every piece has been been sort of taken apart, repaired. Can you give us a snapshot of sort of the the current state of the airplane? You know, where is it now in the restoration process? The center section is what we're we're rebuilding right now. Um, so the spars have been completely NDT'd. We have two beautiful spar benches. Um, that were actually donated by a local company, um, Automation Modular Components. Um, so we basically drew the entire spar section and center section in CAD, and from that we designed our fixture to be able to put it back together. Because one thing important 
uh, about any restoration is you have to have a fixture when you put these parts back together so that way all the pieces will fit together. Um, so we went through and a lot of the, the webbing that goes between the spars, some of it was damaged um, either from the accident or it was from light corrosion. So we had to go through and make new webbing. Um, we've gone ahead and all the little extruded pieces and castings, everything's been inspected, cleaned. Um, basically everything's clecoed back together and for those who don't know what a cleco is, it's a type of clamp that's used to hold parts together in place of a rivet till it can get riveted together. Um, we've gone through and every single uh, the, the center gas web and also the center landing gear beam, those are all ready to be riveted back together. And then all the interior ribs themselves, um, everything's been disassembled. We have these little black bins. Um, they're actually basically were used in the automotive industry, but each bin has the a, a tag on there that basically says what the part is, the part number, the assembly number, and then those bins are filled with all the parts that make up that assembly. So then when the youth come in, they pick up that bin and they know by our color charts what needs to be done. If it needs to be sandblasted, paint stripped, if this part needs to be manufactured, drawn in CAD, and then they take the bin and they do that. And then as the bins um, get more and more empty, then the parts start going back together. So we're we're very close um, to start actually bucking rivets here on the airplane and hopefully having the whole wing center section back together. And then from there, then we'll move to the Ford fuselage. Uh, one of the things that we do have complete, um, sometimes we do have downtime when we're waiting for parts to come in, um, is our throttle quadrant. So the, the actual throttle quadrant has been completely restored. We've actually um, had it up at Oshkosh and displayed at EAA um, Air Venture, and we have also have our glass nose, um, which is also fully restored, ready to go on the airplane, which we've also displayed on um, Air Venture. Yeah, I remember seeing a picture of your glass nose in front of another, I think it was in front of Larry Kelly's uh, Panchito, if I remember right. I saw a picture of that. Yep. Which is, and yep, that's, that's it's great to have that piece, that modular section, because it's so recognizable. Uh, yeah. That, uh, you know, everybody knows almost immediately what that is, and that, that says that, you know, yes, you're serious. You've got uh, you've got a B-25 here. Well, what's really neat, too, about Larry's airplane is that that is actually uh, our sister ship. So uh, Larry's a 734, ours is 733. Oh, no So kidding. they were, so they basically are, uh, you know, consecutive serial numbers. It's the only consecutive serial number B-25s remaining. Wow. That's pretty wild. I have another very interesting story that uh, probably needs to be told as part of the awesomeness of this whole Sambar Mitchell thing. And that is um, when Sambar Mitchell flew as a, a fire suppression bomber, it had 8Z or 8 Zulu written on the tail. And like many in the Warbird community, you tend to restore your airplane to uh, – represent a real World War II airplane. So we did a little research and found out that there was, in fact, an aircraft that flew um, out of Corsica against the Germans over Italy that had eight Zulu written on the tail. In fact, it turns out that the 488th Squadron out there had eight on all of their airplanes, and then the, followed by the letter A through Z to distinguish each different one within the squadron. And that turned out to be the same way for the 486th the 487th, the 488th, and the 489th. So if you see any B-25s out there with 6 Alpha through 6 Zulu or 7 Alpha through 7 Zulu and so on, those all flew out of Corsica. So the 8 Zulu that we wanted to create ours uh, after to represent was 8 Zulu that flew out of the 488th. Um, we researched it and discovered that it had been shot down in the uh, Alps of northern Italy, and nobody had ever recovered it. The crew had all escaped um, safely and parachuted out once when they got hit by anti-aircraft fire. The airplane just flew on its own without a pilot until it crashed into the Alps. So nobody went to recover the airplane. 
So we have uh, one of our uh, 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 board members is Ron Asman. He was part of the original recovery crew. He took it upon himself as a historian to research this, and he got in contact with people. I know I'm making a long story short, but uh, he, he re contacted people in Italy, got an archaeology team to agree to go out there and look for the crashed airplane. They found it. They found it, and they recovered some of the small pieces from it because it, it, it shedded down the mountain, and some of the big pieces are harder to find. And then uh, Ron then the next year went out on an excavation out there to look for some of the parts himself, and he brought some of those parts back. So we have parts here in our shop from the real eight Zulu that flew during the war, and we are going to put some of those parts in our eight Zulu so the heart and soul of that crew and that airplane from World War II will be flying in our eight Zulu. That's a pretty cool story, Todd. That's something else to get an actual piece from you know combat in Europe uh, to to over there. That's pretty cool. So you mentioned the museum. You know, well, what else goes on at the museum? What's next? And what is your hope down the road for the museum to become? So the next big step is we're kind of in this, what I like to call a catch-22 scenario. And uh, basically, I've been very blessed that Todd has been generous enough to give up his hangar, which is actually attached to his house at the Brighton Airport, to currently house the museum. So it's basically a 60 by 45 shop um, that has the B-25s as long as a, another restoration project that I got going on for a customer. Um, so visiting the museum is basically by appointment only because um, it is a working restoration shop and plus because of our, our location. Um, so the next big push is basically we got to raise the money to be able to move out of here. And what we'd like to do is move over to the nearby Livingston County Airport and uh, eventually build a 100 by 100 hangar that will house, be the permanent home for Sandbar Mitchell, but also house the restoration in our youth mentorship program. And as Todd mentioned before, um, that right, you know, currently we ha we're having to turn down kids, and one of the big reasons we have to turn down kids is we just don't have the space for it. Um, so our biggest thing is is to to find donors that are willing to help us um, get to the, get our museum to the next step, and that is actually getting us into a commercial hangar at the Livingston County Airport where we can continue to grow our museum. So that's going to be you know at least a million dollar venture, you know. So we're looking for some people that seriously believe in us and believe in what we're doing that would help us out with with such a a building. So uh, how can um, folks out there support you uh, uh, with with your project, with uh, with the move, with your amazing youth programs, and of course getting the uh, the airplane eventually uh, flying and touring? So basically, they can visit our website, which is warbirdsofglory.org, and we have this really cool campaign called Guardians of History. And uh, through the Guardians of History campaign, they can donate through there. Or if they want to make a larger donation, they can uh, go ahead and they can contact me and Todd directly. Um, but a lot of our, you know, sponsorships and that kind of stuff comes through the Guardians of History campaign. And, uh, you know, we have museum membership. We have merchandise, T-shirts. I mean, all that stuff adds up to help keep us going because we are, you know, just like EA, we are a nonprofit and we survive by financial donation from the public. Awesome, and uh, I would—I suppose I'd be remiss if I uh, didn't also mention that after you've gone to warbirdsofglory.org and uh, made a generous donation to the Sandbar Mitchell, uh, you could also go to eaa.org slash b25 and um, support our project as well as we uh, look to get it flying in the next few years. Then one day you can get a ride on both of them. That's right. <laughs> and you can compare and contrast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, we're right up to the clock on this episode. So uh, Patrick and Todd, thank you guys uh, both so much for taking some time to join us. Hey, on thanks this episode. for having us. Uh, it's yeah, been, thank you. It's absolutely been our pleasure. We've uh, you know followed the project, and uh, it's uh, it's so exciting to uh, to see an airplane like this uh, move in the right direction. 
and it is uh, it is certainly in good hands. So congratulations to you both so far on all your successes, and uh, and we can't wait to uh, to follow the progress and and see that airplane return to the air. Hey, thank you. All right. Well, thanks again, everyone, for out uh, out there who's listening. Thanks as always to everybody who comes uh, to our blog post and leaves some uh, some comments about the episodes, the reviews on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher and all those other places where you can you can leave us uh, your feedback. Uh, we are experimenting with uh, with a new piece of equipment and some new recording uh, gear today. That those of you that have written in and uh, and given us some feedback on some audio issues. Hopefully, uh, this will uh, resolve that. So please let us know one way or the other. And with that, our thanks again to always, uh, as always, everyone who's listening, everyone who takes the time to write. And we'll see you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot. Mm-hmm.